We're talking about the good news about hell. Now, most people probably would say, what could be good about hell? What could be the good news that, that uh, the Bible would share with us this evening? Well, tonight we want to see once again what the Bible has to say. Isn't that what we're after? You didn't come here because you're interested in what Chester Clark has to say. Uh, you came here because you want to see what God's Word has to say. You want to learn. We want to learn together. Amen? Amen. And so tonight we're going to be looking once again at the Word of God. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. And we're, I believe, going to conclude that it has good news about hell. It has something to teach us that maybe we hadn't thought of before. Last night we were looking at what happens when we die. And I believe the Bible shares good news about death, don't you? That God created us in the beginning. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. We became a living soul. And we talked about how in the Bible, and they, uh, the word soul is used repeatedly, but it's always used in context of people who are living, right? It's not a conscious soul that ascends to heaven. It's actually our breath, the, the gift of life that goes back to Jesus. The spirit, it's sometimes called. But we talked about how spirit and breath are used interchangeably, and God preserves us until that resurrection morning. When we die, the next thing we know, the voice of the life giver. Isn't that good news? Amen. I'm so thankful for the truth that we find in God's Word. Tonight we're going to look once again at Revelation 20. I promised we would, so let's begin here. We're going to be unpacking the millennium and the final destruction, the the uh, final lake of fire, as it's called in the book of Revelation. So let's look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, we remember that the Bible uses, in symbolic end-time Bible prophecy, it uses symbols to represent things, right? And here we have symbols being used, and, uh, and some things, I suppose, being very literal. Satan is the one that is about to be bound. Satan is the great enemy of God's people. He's the one who has been the greatest criminal this world has ever known, Right? And just like we have prison sentences for people that we think have done dastardly deeds who deserve to be put out of society, so the devil should be, he should deserve quite a bit, don't you think? He should deserve the longest sentence ever handed down, and I think this may qualify. A thousand years bound to in the bottomless pit. And here we find that the devil is a criminal who's been directly involved with every sin and crime ever committed on the earth. He's going to be bound this thousand years. Sometimes we refer to this thousand years as the millennium. You've probably heard of that. Now, it's not just this thousand years. Um, any thousand years is a millennium, right? Because that's all a millennium means. In fact, this thousand-year period is called millennium. It comes from two words, two Latin words, mille and uh, one thousand, um, meaning and also, uh, mele, I'm sorry, meaning 1,000, and anum meaning year. I was distracted thinking about a story. I don't know if I should tell it, but um, now I guess I have to, don't I? Um, um, I, d I don't know a lot of other languages, but I've spent some time in other parts of the world. And, you know, when you, when you, when you get to know one of the Latin languages, you sort of have, have the ability to pick up some of the... Um, 
some of the other languages. And um, I, w- I was driving through Romania one night. It was very late at night. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and we were driving. I was driving this Toyota van with nine of us in the van. We had left Berlin, and we were, we were trying to make it to our town in, in, uh, in Romania where we would have meetings. And after dark in those days, it's probably better now, but in those days in Romania after dark on the back roads, it's pretty, it's pretty rough going. I mean, there's... There, you never know what's going to be on the road. There's people walking on the road. There's cows on the road. There might be a tractor going down the road. No lights or reflectors or anything like that, you know. And so it's slow going. And we were just going through the town of Craiova. And we're leaving the town. And um, I remember that I saw this guy waving something at me as we went past. Now, I wasn't going very fast. This nine people in a Toyota van with all of our luggage tied on top, like four feet tall, stacked up on top. It wouldn't go very fast, even full speed. It wouldn't go more than about 60 miles an hour. Um, so I said to the fellow next to me, I said, is, is, um, was that a policeman? And he said, yeah, I think it was. I said, was he trying to stop us? And I said, I think he, he said, I think he was. And so anyway, he, he, we stopped and, and backed up, and this policeman comes running up to the window, and he said, um, he started talking and talking and talking and talking in, in Romanian. And um, I said, well, I don't understand Romanian. And um, he started writing things on his little paper. He, he said, he, said he, he wrote numbers and so forth. And I got the idea. He said, you were going 100 kilometers an hour. And, this, the, and I said, there's no way. I wasn't going 100 kilometers an hour. Um, I was just in town. I, I know I wasn't going 100 kilometers. He said, well, 50 Uh, so, so maybe 50. Well, he tried to tell me the, the Sweden was like 30 or something, you know. And anyway, we had this long dialogue with him speaking in Romanian and me speaking in English. And I'll never forget, this is what, what spawned this memory. He kept saying, he kept saying, change meal, something like that. How do you say it? 5,000. Change meal. But it sounded like, and I understood what he meant. I mean, change, meal. I mean, that's pretty hard to miss, right? Meal Latin. Millennium, meal, thousand, mille. And um, he kept saying that and kept saying it and kept saying it. He wanted 5,000 lei on the spot for him to let me go. And um, the more he said change me, change meal, the more it sounded like change me. And... So I kept arguing with him, and I kept saying, I wish I could change you, but I can't. (laughs) And all the passengers in my vehicle were laughing, but he didn't understand a word, so he didn't know what I was saying. And um, eventually, eventually I paid the 5,000 lei, which mounted to about, at the time, I think it was $1.75. And um, we went on our way. But the Latin word mil just simply means... Thousand, right? So when we use the word millennium, we're talking about the thousand years. And this is, this is the time when the devil is going to be bound. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, 
when does this millennium begin? When does it end? And of course, eventually we're going to have to get to the question, where is this bottomless pit that the devil is bound into? These are the questions we have to answer today. Now, first of all, I'm just going to make two statements, and I believe that this is going to be very clear to you as we go through the Bible, as we look at the book of Revelation, as well as we look at the other prophecies about um, this time period. I'm going to make two statements, and then I'm going to proceed to to demonstrate these are true from the Bible. The millennium, I believe, is bound by two resurrections. The resurrection of life at the beginning of the thousand years and the resurrection of damnation, or in the New King James, or in modern translations, the resurrection of condemnation, which is at the end of the thousand years. And so to be able to fully understand this prophecy, we need to find out how it starts and ends and what happens during the period in the middle. So this is what we're going to look at, how, how the Bible shows what takes place with these two resurrections, one at the beginning and one at the end of the millennium. All right, do you want to see what the Bible has to say? John chapter 5. First of all, we're going to start there in John chapter 5 and verse 25. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will what? Will live. What's he talking about? He's talking about a resurrection, right? Those who hear will live, he says. Now, he goes on a couple verses later in verse 28, and he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which how many? All that are in the graves will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. So notice the two resurrections. Some people are surprised. They don't think that even the lost are going to be resurrected. This all seems very vague. Of course, once we understand what we studied about last night with what happens when we die, it starts to make more sense why there would be a resurrection of the saved and also a resurrection of the lost. The first resurrection is the resurrection of those who have done good, and the second one is the resurrection of those who have uh, been condemned. Now, I want to make it very clear here today if it's up to our goodness or our, our good deeds, we're all going to be in the second resurrection, aren't we? I think that should have been abundantly clear as we've studied from night to night that I believe, and I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And it's only as Jesus' righteousness stands in place of our righteousness that we have any hope of being in that first resurrection of those who have done good. Um, but we, we do notice still that uh, the Bible says we're saved by grace, but certainly there's in the, in the judgment we're judged and rewarded according to our works. And so it's as God works through us, through the miracle of salvation, through giving His righteousness to our account, and through changing our hearts and lives, that we can be a part of this first resurrection. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that first resurrection. That's at least if I die. I'd rather not die. I'd rather be among those Paul described who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. But anyway... These two resurrections, one for those who have done good, those who have done evil on the second one. Now, Revelation 20 speaks similarly about it when it says this is the first resurrection, Revelation 20 and verse 5. And we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in Revelation 20, so you may want to put a piece of paper in there or or keep your finger there. We're going to be going back and forth with quite a few verses and reviewing some from, from previous evenings. So, Revelation 20, verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death 
has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Do you see what, what John tells us here in Revelation chapter 20? There's the first resurrection is the resurrection we want to be part of, right? This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. Why? Because on him or her, the second death has no power. Listen, there's, no, there's nothing to fear in the death that you and I all are, are, are destined to die unless Jesus comes before that. There's nothing to, to fear that because the, the Bible refers to it as a sleep, doesn't it? It's the second death that we ought to be worried about. It's the second death, according here to, to the book of Revelation. There's going to be a second death that uh, we don't want to have any part in. Now, the, Paul, the, the writings of Paul describes this first resurrection in these words, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, one of the pra- passages we, prayed, uh, we, we read through last night. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise when? How does it say? They rise first, right? Once again, all of these passages, they're clearly agreeing with each other, aren't they? The dead in Christ will rise first. That's what the passage says. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then he says in verse 17, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. And so this is how Paul describes this wonderful event we speak of as the resurrection. He speaks of it as the dead in Christ rising first. What a glorious description of this time. The dead in Christ rise first, then the followers of Christ who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Um, This is when the promise will be fulfilled that Jesus gave in John chapter 11 and verse 25, that he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall what? He will live, yeah. Because if we, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we're promised eternal life. Yes, the righteous dead will be raised from their graves when Christ returns. Isaiah exults about this prophecy as well when he says in Isaiah 26 and verse 19, Awake and sing ye that dwell in the dust, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Another description of that glorious day when those who sleep in the dust will be resurrected. The graves will be opened. And uh, what a glorious day that will be. Um, Mothers being reunited with their babies who have died. Husbands and wives being reunited. Sons and daughters being reunited with mom and dad. Can you imagine how moving the scene is going to be? Can you imagine how glorious that's going to be when, when that resurrection takes place? It's no wonder that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament speaks about the second coming. It's no wonder that the, the apostles consistently called it the blessed hope. It's what they looked forward to. It's what they lived for. John, Jesus said in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled, right? Don't you love that promise? I'm sure many of you have memorized it. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, what? Come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
This, I believe, friends, tells us where the saved will spend the millennium. I think this is quite clear, that the saved are going to be taken from this earth for the thousand years. He says, when I come again, I'm going to what? Receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And this is what the sa- where the saved are going to spend the millennium. We, we call it heaven. Um, we, 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 we might just conclude that wherever God is is really heaven, right? But it's pretty clear that God isn't here on this earth making mansions for us. He's not preparing a place for us here. He's, he's gone to prepare a place for us, right? That's what he says. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive to myself that where I am, there you may be also. When did Jesus look forward to be reunited with his people? When he comes again, right? Isn't that what he just said? When he comes again, he's going to be reunited. What a wonderful hope that we have. We'll spend the millennium with him. Notice with me again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. On Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be what? Priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, is, is the Bible here trying to tell us that heaven, eternity, is only a thousand years long? No, not at all. There's clearly a first thousand years that is demarcated from the rest of eternity. That seems pretty plain. They'll be priests and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And um, the, the, the passage uh, can also tells us that um, there, we will have a work to do during that time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. The all-wise, all-powerful God of the universe has included feeble men and women in the solemn task of judging fallen men and angels. Now, this is pretty clear when Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 2 and 3, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Many people don't realize that we will have an opportunity to be a part of the judgment scene, the judgment process. You see, this is the plan. God has a plan to restore this earth to its original perfection. Isn't that good news? There's a promise in Nahum 1 verse 9 that says, the curse, the affliction shall not rise a second time. I believe that we can be absolutely sure that after this whole tragedy of sin has been terminated after it's come to an end there's never going to be a rebellion again that brings rears its ugly head and brings sickness and pain and suffering into god's universe now how is that going to happen we've talked about it when we talked about a battle or a game of thrones and revelation's answer to evil we talked about how how god God has to let everything be done fairly and openly and transparently, right? So that no one has doubts or questions. He's allowed Satan to manifest his true character, the true nature of the government, the system that he would establish, and he himself has demonstrated his character. And he is demonstrating his character, a character of love. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so as he comes... We, we talked about, when we looked at the judgment, we talked about how the, there is a judgment to precede the end of time. Daniel chapter 7 makes that very clear, right? Before the kingdom is given to God's people, there's a judgment that takes place. 
When Jesus says in, Matthew, in Revelation chapter 22, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his, what is his work has been. There's a, there's a judgment that has already taken place before Jesus comes again, quite clearly, right? But have we had a part in that? Not really. And I can only imagine, I can only imagine, friends, that if we love Jesus and we've accepted His grace and His blood in our behalf and we're saved in His kingdom and whether we are translated among the living or whether we are resurrected from the grave, it really won't matter, will it? We'll have new bodies and uh, we'll all be gathered together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It really doesn't matter to me which way He chooses for me to be joined to Him. But this one thing I know, if there's somebody that I love who's not there, I'm going to miss them. I'm going to be looking for them. Don't you think, don't you think you'd miss? I mean, the Bible says there we will know even as also we are known. And, and so we're going to be looking for somebody. And, and it wouldn't be good enough. It would not be good enough for God to simply say, well, they chose not to. Well, to me, they looked like, they seemed like, it appeared like they, they, were, they were Christians. They did believe in Jesus. They, they did love Jesus. Why isn't my loved one here? Why isn't my friend here? Can you imagine? We would have that question. And if God did not allow us to take part in the judgment, it would leave lingering doubts that could once again grow into a questioning of whether God had been just and fair. And so what God has done, what God does, as I understand the prophecies, what God does is He involves us in the judgment during the thousand years. The first thousand years of eternity, God says, look, I'll open the books. You can see everything that I've done. You can see, I don't know how it's going to be. The Bible talks about them as books of record. Um, but today we might talk about them as, you know, flash drives or some sort of database, right? I'm sure he has some technology that we would, that we don't even imagine. You know, if he can hold so much data on a string of DNA, I'm sure he can hold a lot of data in ways that we can't even imagine. I'm guessing that we would be able to see the life of our loved one in some sort of a panoramic 3D where we would see and hear and feel and know their know when the Holy Spirit was speaking to their heart and know when they chose not to listen to that voice. And so we can see it. And we can say, God, you are just and fair. You did everything you possibly could to save my loved one. They chose not to be a part of your eternal kingdom. And you know what? The only reason they're not going to be is because God knows they wouldn't be happy there. If God could find some way to save them in a perfect world and have them happy, I'm sure he would. But listen, if we love sin more than we love our Savior, friends, we're not going to be happy in a place where there is no sin, are we? And so, so we will have the opportunity, as I understand these passages, we'll have the opportunity to judge. And notice it says that we'll judge the world. It says, do not know that we will judge angels, even, evidently even the lives of the angels who went in rebellion with Lucifer will be open for review. For a thousand years, we will have the opportunity to see that God did everything 
transparently, fairly, and with as much desire and effort to save to the uttermost everyone that he possibly, possibly could. And so everyone will have the opportunity to have their, answer, their questions answered. See, for thousands of years, God, Satan has leveled the accusation against God that he is unfair and unloving and unjust. Why would we need to judge evil angels and uh, sinners if uh, God has already judged? Simply because we want to be a part of affirming that, God, that Satan's accusations are false, that God's justice is loving and fair. And I believe that the, the records, those who inspect the records, you and I, after we've gone through these books, we will only be left with one thing to say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. You might be wondering then, what happened to those who were living when Christ comes a second time? but did not accept salvation. We've, we've pretty much said, right, that, or Paul has told us in 1 Thessalonians 4, that those who were sleeping in Jesus would be raised from the dead, the, the trumpet would sound, and the voice of the archangel would be heard, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But what about the people around us who have not been saved? They have not accepted Jesus as their Savior. What about them? That's a fair question to ask. And, and once again, we have to turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to look in Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to see the answer here. And uh, we're going to see the answer. Let's see. My, my verse got cut off again. Revelation chapter 19. And we're going to read verse 21. It says, The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse, and, um, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. All the fowls were filled with their flesh. In other words, at the second coming of Jesus, those who are not prepared to meet him, they're not going to survive that event. That's what, that's what Revelation 19 tells us. It's going to be a fatal encounter with Jesus. In fact, you can read about the first um, description of the second coming. We looked at it or, or spoke about it once very quickly early on in our series. Revelation chapter 6 talks about how when Jesus comes a second time, there's a great it's a catastrophic event that mountains and islands are moved out of their places and the great men, the rich men, the mighty men, the captains, the bondmen, and the freemen, this is the description it gives there in Revelation chapter 6, they cry out to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. They're not ready to see Jesus. They don't want to see Jesus. They don't want their life of sin interrupted. And that request, of course, is answered. They are slain by the brightness of His coming. You know, if one angel came to the tomb of Jesus and the Roman soldiers became as dead men, what do you think it will be when the sky is filled with 10,000 times 10,000 angels and God Himself seated on His throne is made present? You know, the Bible says our God is a consuming fire. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God. And if we hold on to our sins, if we choose to hold on to our sins, we can't exist in the presence of God. We need the grace of Jesus Christ to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? That's the only way. It's the only way. And so, 
So the, uh, the Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 33, and at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. The way Revelation said that is the remnant are slain with the sword that comes from his mouth and the fowls of the air clean up. There's no one left. I mean, after all, if the righteous are are taken to heaven to be with Jesus, and the wicked are slain, there's no one left to clean up the mess that is here on earth, the destruction that has taken place. At the second coming of, of Christ, the righteous are resurrected, translated to meet Christ in the clouds. The unsaved will be slain by the brightness of His coming, by the sword that goes out of His mouth. And someone is going to ask the question, what about the unsaved who are dead in their graves when Jesus comes? What about them? It's the last group of people we haven't really talked about. We've talked about the, the saved right uh, alive, the living, the saved dead. We've talked about the unsaved living. Now let's look at the unsaved dead at the second coming. Again, Revelation 20 has the answer. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. Now there's a very strong insinuation in that passage, isn't there? It doesn't say it overtly, but it's very strongly insinuated that they will live again after the thousand years are finished, right? That's pretty much what it's telling us. The rest of the did live not again until the thousand years were finished. So the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come together. We're starting to see the picture of the biblical millennium that God is trying to reveal to us here in Revelation chapter 20. If we look at these events at Christ's coming, we see that Jesus will return with all the holy angels. Uh, most of these passages we've already looked at either in our previous night when we talked about the second coming or or in our last few nights, but Matthew 25, verse 31, is one of those passages. Um, the dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. The living saved are caught up to meet Jesus in the air. We read that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. The saved go home with Jesus and reign with Him for a thousand years. We see that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. The unsaved are slain by the brightness of the coming of Christ. And there's a couple of passages we could look. Jeremiah 25, 33, we just looked at. Um, the wicked dead are not raised until after the thousand years. We just read that verse in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 5. Satan is bound for the thousand years by a chain of circumstances. He has no one to tempt and no one to destroy. Now you can imagine if for 6,000 year plus years, Satan has been working to tempt and to destroy and to, to, to garner the worship that belongs to Christ alone and to get people here on this earth to follow his plan instead of God's plan, his ideas instead of God's word. And all of a sudden, how many people are left for him to be tempting? Nobody. Praise God during the millennium and for the rest of eternity, you and I will be outside of Satan's power and influence. Aren't you thankful for that? You'll never again have to ask the question, is that true? Won't that be nice? You'll never again have to ask the question, is this right or is it wrong? Because there will be no right or wrong. There'll be no temptation. There'll be no error and deception and falsehood. Oh, what a wonderful day that is going to be. But not a wonderful day for Satan. Because Satan here has this, has this uh, problem on his hands. He has nobody to tempt, nobody to destroy. The righteous are in heaven, the wicked are dead, everyone is gone, everywhere there is just ruin. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 4 in just a minute. 
Everywhere there is ruin, and, and now Satan has no one, to, no one to try to recruit to his side, and this earth becomes the devil's prison. The Bible says that Satan was put into a bottomless pit for the millennium, but how is he chained? He's chained because he can't leave here. He can't tempt anyone. He can't destroy anyone. He'll have a thousand years simply to consider what the expense and the cost of his rebellion has been. You remember that Revelation chapter 20 and verse 3 says this. He laid, this is actually verse 2. It says, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Do you understand what it's saying here in Revelation 20 verse 3? He makes it pretty clear, doesn't he? How is the devil, how is he being limited? He's, for the thousand years, he can't deceive the nations. Why? Because they're not alive, right? I mean, this passage has made it quite clear. After these things, he must be released for a little while. You know, there were some people who thought that the millennium began at the ascension of Christ. And um, so, in, in, in the, late first, uh, the late 10th century, that would be, the 900s, um, they had a great crisis of faith. I don't know if you realize this. Anyone here remember Y2K? Yeah? Where everyone thought that the, you know, the satellites were going to fall out of the sky and our refrigerators were going to stop working and the power grid was going to go down and, and all this was going to happen. Well, I'm telling you now about Y1K, okay? Y1K was a terrible, terrible event that never happened. Um, because many people read this prophecy in Revelation chapter 20, and they said, well, the devil's been bound the last thousand years. I'd hate to see what it's like when he's loosed. And they actually believed that the second millennium, the devil is going to be set free. And if it's this bad when he's bound and tied up, it's going to be really bad when he's set free. And so people actually committed suicide before Y1K because they were so fearful of what would happen. Um, now, obviously, they didn't have the correct understanding of the prophecy, did they? Um, the Bible says that the devil is bound in the bottomless pit. Now, we have to answer that question. I've suggested to you that it is the earth, actually. He's here. The, 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 the earth is the, the prison house of Satan. But why would I say that? Well, the word abusos is translated bottomless pit. Any idea what that word is also translated in English? Abusos? Abyss, that's exactly right. Abyss is just this great empty void, right? That's an abyss. We think of it if you, if, you, if you just go off a cliff and there's nothing below you. That would be an abyss, right? It's just this nothingness. It's, 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 it's a similar word, by the way. It's a similar word that the Old Testament has. The Old Testament has a word in Hebrew that is very similar and it is used in the first few verses of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And verse 2 says, And the earth was, anybody remember what it says? Without form and void. I think the Hebrew word is tehu. And tehu is a, is a synonym of the Greek word abusos. And it's meaning there's this desolate nothingness. There's no, there's no order, it's just simply chaos. 
There's nothing, there's, there, the earth was without form and void. Now I want to show you how the Old Testament prophesied that the earth would return to that state again at some point. Notice with me again the, the prophet Jeremiah. Now verse, chapter 4, verse 23. And he says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was what? Without form and void. Tehu. It was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. He says, as he goes on, he says, I beheld, and lo, there was what? There was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. Note that he says, there was no man. This was, a, this was an earth that was, again, desolate, without form and void, tehu. In Greek, he would have said it was abusos. It was this, this nothingness, chaotic place. How did it get this way? I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down, notice, at the presence of the Lord and by His fierce anger. The New Testament describes how that happens. It happens at the second coming. When Jesus comes again, the earth is made desolate. It's a grim place to be sentenced to for a thousand years, wouldn't you say? Satan and his evil angels have nothing to do but to wander to and fro on the dark, devastated, lonely planet and reflect on the results of their rebellion against God. So during the millennium, if we just summarize here, during the millennium, the earth is desolate and devastated. We'll look at some other verses that talk about that. All the unsaved are dead, slain by the brightness of Jesus' coming, or left in the graves till after the millennium, after the thousand years. All the saved are in heaven, reigning with Christ, doing that work of examining the books and, 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 uh, and, and judging, as, as we already saw. Satan is bound on this dark, devastated planet to reflect on his rebellion, to see, to demonstrate that uh, even Satan, you remember how we saw during the ten last plagues, or the seven last plagues, sorry, the seven last plagues, those who suffer the vengeance, the wrath of God, they don't repent, do they? What about the devil? You think he's going to find it in his heart to repent? No. We're going to see what happens. He won't change. The angels he led into rebellion, they won't change. They won't have a change of heart. The millennium will demonstrate to the universe that even after a thousand years of reflecting, the devil and his angels still are determined to be in rebellion against the King of Kings. Even if no matter how long time they, were, they would be given, that decision would not change. They would still choose the same master. They would still reject the plan of salvation, even if they had a thousand chances to accept it. Notice with me what happens at the millennium, end of the millennium. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. How is he going to be released from his prison? What happens at the end of the thousand years? We already read it here in Revelation 20. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. That pretty much means that the rest of the dead do live again after the thousand years, right? So all of a sudden, the, the wicked are resurrected. Can you imagine the unsaved of all time? This is the resurrection of damnation we talked about. Jesus talked about, right? The, um, the second resurrection. The, uh, the unsaved of all time, some of the greatest scientists, perhaps, some of the greatest 
military architects of, of battles and wars, and with all of them together, alive, uh, you know, simultaneously on earth, they might be tempted to think that they still have a chance to overthrow the government of God. Satan is released from his prison, it says, to go out to deceive the nations which were in the four corners of the earth, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, where, who are they going to fight with? Where is this battle going to be? What's it going to be over? The Bible makes it all clear. When it says, the rest of the dead live not again, a thousand years have finished. So here he is marshalling their forces, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. At the same time, evidently, the holy city, New Jerusalem, is going to come down from God out of heaven. And this city will be the target of Satan's wrath. For this is what the Bible says. I want you to see it in the Bible for yourself. It says that... Um, now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And what's going to happen? They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So somehow here... And I don't understand everything, but the next chapter talks about in detail about the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And evidently what happens is it's during this time that he is marshalling his forces, that he convinces people that they still can get through the gates of that city if they will just stick together. If they'll just band together, they can still get access to that tree of life and find immortality. And Satan and his legions, the millions of lost who have rejected the grace of God throughout all time, go and they surround the beloved city. I believe that's talking about the new Jerusalem. Fire comes down from God out of heaven, the Bible says, and devours them. This is, friends, this is the end of the battle. This is the end of the conflict between good and evil. What will happen to the devil himself? The Bible tells us. What happens to the devil? Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Then death and Hades were cast into the fire. This is the second death. And anyone, anyone not written, found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Do you see why it's important for our names to be written there? Yes. Now, I don't think God tells us all these things to scare us, friends. I think He just he wants us to know, right? He wants us to know what the end of things will be, and He wants to warn us. If we are not willing to be saved by His grace, we won't be able to save ourselves. Notice with me what it said. It said, death and Hades were cast into the fire. This is the second death. The second death is a permanent death. It's, it's the first death we shouldn't worry about. We talked about that last night. If you missed it, I hope you can listen to the message. We looked at so many Bible verses that tell um, what the Bible teaches about death. It surprises many people. But the second death is what we have to be worried about. It's an eternal death. It's a permanent death. And even death itself is going to be cast into the lake of fire. How does that happen? What that, friends, is teaching us, friends, is that 
after this final destruction, death and dying will be no more. There will be no more death. Death itself is going to be cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades, death and hell. This is what it says, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And I believe, friends, and I'm going to show you from God's Word, I believe very conclusively that not only this earth with all of its tainted um, record and influences of sin, but even... Even the devil and his angels are going to be burnt up and destroyed as well. I want to show you that from God's Word. Satan, his evil angels, and sinners are going to be gone forever. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will be as, what does it say? Stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts that will leave them neither root nor branch. How much is going to be left? Nothing. That's what, that's what the prophet Malachi tells us. Ezekiel chapter 28, speaking of Satan himself, the great deceiver himself. Therefore, he says, verse 18, Therefore will I bring a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes in the sight of all them that behold thee. You know, many people have, have, gotten con- have gained, I guess, some comfort from the idea that there will be a, an eternal torment for Lucifer or for Satan and his angels or even for those who are lost for that matter. But I believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that even Satan, who's got to be the worst of them all, right? Even Satan is going to be burned up. He's going to be destroyed. He's going to suffer. Yes, God will, God will enact justice. He will suffer for the wrongs that he has committed. He could have... Um, He could have had a change of heart. The wicked could have had a change of heart. They didn't. But the Bible tells us that Satan himself will be turned to ashes in the sight of the world. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. A lot of people ask me, well, what about that eternal fire, right? Doesn't the Bible talk about eternal fire? And that's a very, very good question. I want you to look in your Bibles in the book of Jude, just before Revelation, the book of Jude, and we're going to read verse 7. There's only one chapter. I want us to just see, I'm not going to look at all of the Bible verses that speak about eternal fire, but what I want to show you is what eternal fire means. Now, we've agreed already in our seminar previous evenings, we've agreed that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, right? So if one place the Bible says Satan is burned up, the wicked will be as stubble, there'll be as ashes under our feet. If it says that in one place, then it can't disagree or contradict it elsewhere, right? And so let's see how we can understand this phrase eternal fire where it doesn't contradict what the Bible says. Jude 7, we read what what, uh, the prophet Jude says. He says in verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way? You remember? Okay, Lot was let out and they fire from heaven and so forth. Even Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of, what does he say? Eternal fire. So Jude says, look, you want to understand what the end of the wicked is going to be? God's given us an example. 
That's what the end of the wicked is going to be. Jude says that the Sodom and Gomorrah are set for us for an example. They've already suffered the vision, the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, what some people might believe the conspiracy that the newspapers are all hiding from us the truth that those cities are over there burning still someday. Um, but do you think they are? Are they still burning? So what did it mean when it says that they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire? It clearly doesn't mean that they burn for eternity. What it means is the consequences are eternal. There's no returning. No one has ever tried to rebuild Sodom and Gomorrah. They're not coming back. And friends, eternal fire has eternal consequences. That's it. It's over. It's final. Eternal consequences is the uh, meaning of this phrase, eternal fire. But what about the fire that cannot be quenched? Have you heard that expression? The fire that cannot be quenched. I want to show you that expression in the Old Testament. Once again, we'll see how we can understand it, where it doesn't contradict what we've seen in God's Word already. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 27. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 27. And this is the, this is the uh, prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, we've referred to this a couple of times. God, God through Jeremiah is telling the Jewish leaders, don't try to depend upon Egypt for your support. You're supposed to be paying your tribute to Babylon. God has brought Babylon as an instrument to teach you a lesson. And, uh, of course, if you don't listen, you're going to be destroyed and this is the description of how Babylon is going to destroy you. And he says, verse 27, But if you will not hearken unto me, and hallow the Sabbath day, and not to bear burden, even entering into the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then, he says, I will kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be, what does it say? It shall not be quenched. This is a fire that cannot be quenched. Now, this is the question I have to ask. Did Jerusalem get destroyed? Yes. Was it burned? Yes, it was. Is the fire still burning? No. So when a fire cannot be quenched, does that mean that it will burn for eternity? Or does that mean it's going to burn until it's completely consumed everything? You know, I, I've heard, we, 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 we know this in, in, in practical life. If we picked up in the morning newspaper and we said that we saw a report there that the fire department responded to a fire on 102 Main Street and they were not able to put out the fire. How many of us would assume that it's going to keep burning? It's still burning, it's going to keep burning, it's always going to be burning. Would we assume that? No. What we, what we would understand was it burned until it put itself out, right? Until there was nothing left to burn. And uh, the fire that cannot be quenched is a fire that will burn until all is consumed. It's a fire that completes its destruction. It's a, a total loss. What about the phrase forever and ever? Revelation even uses this a couple times. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. You're familiar with that, right? Now, I'm not trying to set aside the Word of God. I'm trying to understand how can we understand these phrases with what the Bible says about the destruction, the eternal destruction, not only of Satan and those who follow him, but even the destruction of death itself, the death and, and pain. Well, let's look at another Bible passage. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. 
Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verses 16 and 17. And once again, you're going to see that, and this is, these are just examples. I could share with you on each of these, uh, each of these phrases. I could share with you multiple passage, passages which show the same usage. And so we understand how these phrases are being used. Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verses 16 and 17, talking about servants in the household. Every seven years, servants were to be let free, to go as free men. Uh, the year of Jubilee, that was the way the system, the economic system of Israel was set up. And it says in verse 16 that some people might decide, you know, we want to stay in this household. I want to stay as a servant in this home. And, and so verse 16, there's provision made for that. And it shall be if he says unto you, I will not go away from thee because he loves thee in thy house, because he is well with thee. Verse 17, then thou shalt take an all and thrust it through his ear unto the door, pierce the earlobe, and he shall be thy servant forever. And also thou shalt do unto thy maid ser- uh, and also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. Now this is the question I have: Does this Bible passage mean that anyone who had that happen to them, their ear pierced with an awl through onto the doorpost of the door, they're still alive somewhere, still serving? Was that a good way to get eternal life? Just have your ear pierced? Is that what it means? Of course not. We don't read that and, and assume that ever. What we know is they would be their servant until they died, right? That's what forever meant, and long as life would last. And so we can easily understand these phrases as signifying the eternal consequences, the complete destruction as the, uh, the punishment or the punishing as long as life would last. You see, God never promised eternal life to everyone. And this is something I think many Christians just don't stop to think. If we all lived, whether we were living in pain or agony or in ecstasy in heaven, if we all lived forever, then we all have eternal life. God never promised. In fact, we we all know John 3.16. Can we say it together? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not burn forever and ever and ever, Is that what it said? No, it said, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The punishment for sin, friends, is an eternal punishment, but not an eternal punishing. There's a difference. It's an eternal punishment. The wages of sin is what? Death. And God means what He says. If we accept Jesus, we won't perish, but we'll have eternal life. Eternal life is only given to those who love Jesus. You see, my friends, this is the problem. And I, don't, I, I understand that many of my good friends, they, they believe in an eternal torment. They believe that there will be forever and ever, amen, a pain center somewhere in the universe. And I respect them for that. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I believe the Bible teaches that a loving God will cleanse the earth of sin. In fact, the the Old Testament calls it His strange act. Uh, We can't can't even comprehend how much pain it must cause the heart of God. But somehow, this universe has to be restored. 
And it would not be fair. Think about it for a minute. Let's suppose you're an antediluvian boy. You didn't exercise faith in those sacrifices. You didn't bring a lamb. You were one of those that didn't get on the ark. But you weren't a bad person. Would it be fair for God for you to go to hell and then for the last 4,000 years you're, this little boy's been burning in hell and for uh, the ages of eternity it will continue? But what happens in 1940s? Hitler joins you. And is it fair for God to burn the little boy 4,000 years longer than he burned Hitler? You understand what, you understand what happens when you, when you make a God someone who is, who is tormenting people? Listen, the point of the death of the wicked is not to torment them. The point, justice, yes, fairness, yes, but restoration. The universe has to be restored. Many people have rejected the idea of a God who would torture people forever and ever, and it's an idea that I think the Bible rejects as well. I think it's an idea that came in through the, through the Greek idea, ideology that um, snuck into the Christian church. We don't have time to get into all that history tonight. But it's not an idea that we find clearly in the Bible. Now, when, when the translators were reading it, when they were looking at these verses, many of them believed it. But I don't believe that's what the Bible actually teaches. So once everything is consumed, once sin and sinners and Satan himself and even death is cast into the lake of fire. The Bible says that He will make all things new. Now, you and I in that day, we may have relatives, friends, someone who we, we hate to see having ended that way. I think we're going to cry. And that's why I think the Bible says in Revelation 21 and verse 4, following this situation... And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. God Himself is going to be comforting us. Friends, God Himself, I think, is going to be mourning. I know it. He loves our loved ones more than we do. But there's going to be an end of sorrow and crying. There's going to be an end of death. Notice what it says. Oh, I love this promise. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. There shall be no more, what does it say? There shall be no more pain. That in itself should tell us, friends. The torture and pain is ended. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. What a glorious eternity God promises the saved. Oh, friends, the human mind cannot comprehend the glory and the beauty of the paradise that God is planning for those who follow Him. And to think that the wicked, the unsaved, could have enjoyed this, but the price at some point seemed too high. They were willing to choose the world instead of to choose their Savior. So I just have to ask you, my friends, what group are you going to be in on that day? Are you going to be inside the city or outside the city? Are you going to be in the first resurrection, happy to see the second coming? Or will you be in the second resurrection? Now is the time to make our decisions. 
Now is the time to decide to study God's word and to follow it, whatever it teaches, wherever it leads. The only way to be absolutely sure that you and I are among the righteous at the end of the millennium is to give our hearts and our lives to Jesus completely today. That's what I want to do. That's the choice that I want to make. Is there anything in this world that's worth missing heaven over? Is there anything we would trade for Jesus? Maybe tonight God is speaking to your heart. Maybe there's something in your life that has been holding you back, something that you're convicted about, you've seen it, you, maybe you've seen it in God's Word. But tonight you see the beauties of heaven, the glories of eternity, God's plan to restore all things new, and you say, God, I don't want anything to hold me back. I don't want to miss out on heaven for the world. I don't want anything to come between me and following your will, your wishes for my life. Is that what you'd like to say tonight? You'd like to say, Lord, nothing between me and you. Is that your choice? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father God, we just thank you that we have the privilege of understanding a little more from the book of Revelation about this millennium and about what happens at the end of it. Lord, we thank you that you give us the opportunity to, to, to see those books of record and to testify that you've been just and fair. And Lord, we didn't have a chance to, to, to even look even deeper into the Revelation chapter 20 that, that even the, the wicked, as they march on the city, they too have an opportunity to have the books opened once again and they will testify that you've been just and fair. And at that point, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that it's ever lived, that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. Oh, Father God, I just pray that we might not wait until that day to confess the truth, but that we might confess it now, that we might not wait until that day to say you've been just and fair and good and but that today we might recognize you're, you're asking for our hearts, you're asking for our lives. Father, there's some here that may be struggling. There may be decisions they have to make, choices. Whenever I, I preach the gospel, there, there are decisions to be made, and there's, there's the valley of decision, and there's, there's the Holy Spirit working, and, and there's temptation as well. And so right now, I just want to pray for your spirit to be moving strongly in our hearts, in my heart too, that we might, we might have your Spirit showing us the truth very clearly. You, you've said that He's sent to lead us into all truth. May that be our experience. Help us to let go of anything that would keep us from you. Help us, help us to be on the inside of that city, the new Jerusalem. Help us to see that new earth created all brand new. And while we may weep, Lord, we know that you will wipe those tears from our eyes and that you will give us a new world, a new life. The former things will not even come into mind. We pray we might be there, part of that plan, your plan for our future. We thank you in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.